you are invited as we delve into the unhinged. Get out of the grave, Alan. The grotesque. My and the bizarre. Speaking, what do you want? Whether you asked for it or not, this is Late Night Psychorama. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Late Night Psychorama, the podcast where you will get two movies that have nothing to do with each other, a la the glory days of the drive-in. There will be spoilers, so if you do not want the movies spoiled for you, please go watch the movies first. And then come back and listen to this episode. I'm Joe. I'm Ryan. And I'm Andrew. And the movies we will be discussing tonight are The Innocents. There has never been a ghost story created especially for the adult moviegoer until The Innocents. Do they ever return to possess a living? 20th Century Fox, which presented Deborah Carr in Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, and such outstanding motion picture immortals as Snake Pit, Gentleman's Agreement, and Peyton Place, now gives you The Innocents. And we will also be discussing The Exorcist. Life had been good to Chris McNeil. She was a successful actress. Her daughter, Reagan, was a happy, healthy 12-year-old. Until that night, at the party, when a terrible force entered their lives, and strange things began to happen. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. Tell me that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that. The one hope. The only hope. The Exorcist. Rated R. Mother, what's wrong with me? And our very special guest for this episode, we are joined by writer, director, and author Nicholas Meyer of such things as uh, Star Trek II, Star Trek VI, also an author, The 7% Solution, West End Horror. Thank you so much for coming on. We are very happy to have you on. It's a pleasure. Before we get any further, can we call you Nick? Is Nick okay? Yes, it is. In, okay. print, I, in print, I am Nicholas, but in person, I'm most other things. And I've awesome. been called them. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nick, we're really excited to have you here. Thanks for joining us. This is it's a pleasure. Awesome. It's a pleasure. Ooh, guys, instead of um, doing it, you know, if it, we, we typically talk about things we've seen recently, but we've been watching so much stuff, we'd like to direct you straight to our Instagram because between Joe and I, I think we're get, we're probably going to clear a hundred movies before the month's over. So look at them. Yeah. Just uh, it's all there. There are so many awesome ones, so many turds too. So we'll talk about it there. Yes. All right. So Joe, tell us about the innocence. Beneath a weeping willow, but now 
A young woman is given a job as the governess of a wealthy bachelor's niece and nephew. All is well at first. Before long, however, the children's subtly odd behaviors and the estate itself begin to erode her goodwill and possibly her sanity. Who wrote that? Who wrote the blurb? I did. Oh, very good. Okay. Oh, thank you. This movie had the coolest cold opening I've seen in a movie in a really long time with just the black panel and the eerie child song. Yes. I, I, I was just like, what's this going to be like? I wonder what Nick was thinking. Put that on and was immediately captivated. Mm-hmm. I have not been this enthused by a movie, I don't think, in a long time. And I am really upset that I've deprived myself of seeing it. Until I'm now. so happy to hear that you, that you enjoyed it because I, you know, I, it, it's such a horse of a different color, albeit it's in black and white, for a horror <laughs> movie. But I, it, it is my favorite horror movie. Um, but I didn't, you know, is it drive-in horror? I don't know if it qualified as that but it has a very involved history first of all it comes from a novella by henry james and for those of your listeners who've read the novella it's called the turn of the screw and the turn of the screw is a novella which relies on the unreliability of the narrator and in my opinion, possibly the movie's only flaw is the very first line. Because the very first line is the most important line. And it's delivered while the camera is out of focus. And no. you, you're, 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 you're opening your bag of popcorn. You're just settling in. And you may miss this voice saying, you do have an imagination, don't you? Uh, That's so important <laughs> with children. And it, it kind of blips by because the movie hasn't really started yet. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of your viewers, and you know there are spoilers here, um, Deborah Carr plays the young lady, the governess, who's come to take care of these children. And one of the things that I love, and it took me many watchings of the viewer of the movie to figure this out, because I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, <laughs> is that um, we instantly trust Deborah Carr in these big hoop skirts as a governess. Mm-hmm. And we're not quite sure why, except, as I say, after multiple viewings, I said, oh, wait. Wasn't she wearing those same outfits when she was taking care of the King of Siam's children in The King and I? This is a particularly brilliant piece of casting because everybody who's seen The King and I goes, oh, yeah, yeah, she's the governess. It's, you know, <laughs> she, she loves children. What could, be, what could go wrong? And, and uh, anyway, there's also an opera uh, of The Turn of the Screw by the British composer uh, Benjamin Britten. And I believe, I, I could be wrong, I haven't looked at it in a long time, the, the movie was photographed by Freddie Francis and is the screenplay by Truman Capote? Is it, am I, is it Harold Pinter? 
Did oh, Pitcher, he did punch up. W- w- William Archibald did the principal script, and then Truman Capote was asked to come in and rewrite it. And he was actually in the middle of doing In Cold Blood at the time. Good shows. <laughs> <laughs> um, because Jack Clayton didn't like the script as it was because he thought it wasn't ambiguous enough. Ah, we now come to my favorite part of why I love this movie. Ooh. Big backstory from me. Um, I'm a very flat-footed kind of person. I, I share Shakespeare's skepticism about astrology, about yeah, and Sherlock Holmes' skepticism about ghosts. He says to Watson, this agency stands flat-footed on the ground. No ghosts need apply. So mm-hmm. how do you tell a ghost story for a person like me who <laughs> goes, yeah, how are you going to make me believe? And the answer has to be ambiguity. It has to be, is this explicable is this inexplicable am i seeing what's real or am i my senses and my faculties deceiving me right and um you know it's a great line in hamlet it goes there is nothing good or bad but thinking makes it so (laughs) which is which is precisely this lady's problem and for those of you who watch the movie or read the James novella, the beauty part is that you're three quarters of the way through it before it suddenly occurs to you that maybe this woman is out of her mind. <laughs> well, I think I started to put that together the moment she, she showed such bizarre interest in, um, what was the boy's name? Master... Miles. Miles. Master Miles. Yeah, her interest in Miles, but particularly her performance in the eyes that she gives him. And there there was a lot of discomfort that I, I was yeah. reading from the screen. It was kind of radiating it in a way where I... Uh, she really went for I, it, Deborah Carr. Yeah. Yeah, and it, but it, and then it plays into that story. It's, it's how reliable is she? She's kind of being a pervert, <laughs> like a little bit. Uh, well, uh, or uh, in Victorian terms, I guess what you'd call a sexual hysteric, because oh. she's absolutely she's absolutely fixated on the previous governess and the, and the um, the the guy who who the, died with her, the mm-hmm. the lover. Yeah. There is a movie about them, by the way, a separate movie. What? Really? With Marlon Brando. Really. I believe it's called the night of the following day, but I'm not I'm not sure that that's what it what it's it's called. It's um, kind of a fun title. Andrew, let me look it up while we talk. Anyway, Andrew, I'm really curious. What did you think of this? Um, I thought this was great, and um, I think it's an actual perfect choice for especially the month we're in. Uh, this is definitely like an October uh, ghost movie, and uh, the entire time. Uh, watching this movie, I was kind of guessing whether or not the governess was um, uh, not really sane, or if there was in fact a ghost that possessed these um, children. And you never really get uh, any concrete evidence of either, because every time she sees a ghost and points it out to anyone, they all kind of stare at her, and you don't know if they're frightened of her or the fact that there's a ghost. 
Yes. Are, yeah. are, are they afraid to, to say, I don't see anything? Yeah. <laughs> they don't want well, to like, piss her Meg, off. Yeah. Is, it, is, is it Megs Jenkins who plays the housekeeper? The um, Or is it... Um, oh, it's, no, it's, you're correct. Yes. It, yes. Yeah. No, I, okay. All right. Yeah. Right, Miss. Okay. Let me just let me just find this thing if I can find it. Anyway, so I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Andrew. Oh no, no. I just I pretty much was just wrapping it up. That was my. I, I thought this was a great movie. The fact that it was black and white. Uh, I can't imagine watching this movie not in black and white. It's wow. not. It's not called the the. Uh, I, I I got the wrong name for it. The name of the movie is called The Nightcomers. And it is listed as the prequel to Henry James' Turn of the Screw. Oh, wow. Focusing on groundskeeper Peter Quint's slow corruption of the virtuous governess, Miss Jessel, and the children she looks after. Um, it was directed by Michael Winner. Go figure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and written by someone named Michael Hastings. I have to confess, I've not seen this movie, but I guess... Given, you know, my fascination with this story, it's certainly an interesting idea. It's kind of wonderful, in my opinion, when a work of art prompts you to think of permutations of it. Hmm. Um, you know, what was Falstaff like as a little boy? Is, is there any point in... in writing a story about that in my opinion all art is a history of cut and paste oh yeah and, for sure and, and art that is you know usually has a profit motive so when you talk about movies that are interested in sequels exorcist 3 exorcist 4 there's a exorcist joke in time after time they come out of the movie theater and they've just seen <laughs> exorcist seven which i thought was funny at the time um <laughs> that's a good time traveling bit <laughs> but but the idea of having sequels and prequels and spin-offs this is not original with movies and television nick do you think you could build on um on the innocence do you think you you could find a way to kind of unpack it and explore it further than it has been well i worked for many years on a contemporary version of it, which was set in Los Angeles and, oh, wow. and was about a school teacher who had lost her job in the cutbacks on the L.A. Unified system and answers an ad to go into Bel Air or Beverly Hills, some ritzy neighborhood, but Bel Air where it's sort of up in the hills and look after the children of a dead rock star who with his girlfriend OD'd oh. and it's all about her losing her marbles while trying to take care of these two angelic or not as the case may be uh, children but he's got a you know it's a huge mansion and he's got a recording studio there and he's got speakers all over the ground so when she thinks She's hearing voices or something. And somebody says, no, no, no. These are these, you know, speakers he's got on the lawn. You're just hearing that and stuff. And so it, it was an attempt to transplant it. And I think my favorite scene was when she goes into a Ralph's supermarket to try to sort of 
<laughs> you know, sort of clear her head. And then she starts hearing stuff coming over the PA system where they usually are advertising potatoes. Um, <laughs> That's would funny. it be that would be like this, this the the song that continues to happen over and over again throughout the movie, right? Are you familiar with the other films of Jack Clayton, by the way? The Pumpkin oh, really? Eater, the, the, the Pumpkin Eater, Something Wicked, This Way Comes. Oh, I've um, seen that. Okay, all right. So you do know some Jack Clayton. Okay. Um, but anyway, I, I thought his casting of, of, of Deborah Carr, that was a stroke of genius. And I, I once met him, um, and this just goes to show you how unconscious people are. I, I was at a cocktail party and uh, I guess he wasn't drinking because I think he had s- stopped. Um, and I said to him that, that the casting of Deborah Carr as the governess is fucking genius because of the <laughs> king and I. And he said, gee, I wonder if we thought of that. <laughs> Happy accidents, right? You bet. Andrew, you said something about um, ha- feeling, probably feeling differently if this movie were in color, right, Andrew? I don't know. Yeah, I find that, like, the black and white really fit. Uh, the mood, fit, for sure. Yeah, and especially with, like, um, a woman Darkness. being in a black dir- dress, just walking around and kind of disappearing in the shadows. Like, that shot of her just, like, crossing the hallway uh when no. the governess is checking in on the ch- the children um that really spooked me and it's re- it's really interesting for like a movie from 1961 to kind of have that chilling creepy effect wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute you guys have seen the cabinet of dr caligari what year oh, is yeah. that oh that's 19, true 19 or something let me just make this <laughs> statement we can throw it out there and argue about it but i think great art doesn't date mhm for sure. You may, sure. You may be able to tell what year it happened, but the year has nothing to do with its effect on you. We don't listen to yeah. Bach and say, oh, this is an oldie but a goodie. Yeah, right, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> and I would also argue the benefits of black and white generally as adding to one's willing suspension of disbelief. You are already in another place. Mm-hmm. I was just watching Some Like It Hot. And originally, <laughs> Some Like It Hot, they were going to make it in color because Monroe had it in her contract that all her films had to be in color. And they found that once they put it in color, the the makeup on the on the boys yeah. looked ridiculous. <laughs> right. uh, it, just, it just wasn't working. And I Did think they, they tested it that way. What? Did they did they test it that way? Uh, with, I guess no, they didn't. Shooting, they, they, they didn't make it in color. They they made yeah. some shots and some tests, and they said, Marilyn, look, you know, um, and she had problems with it anyway because she said, "How could I not know they're not boys?" And they said, "Well, yeah, that's the acting part. You have to right. pretend <laughs> that you don't know that they're not." Um, <laughs> but uh, Orson Welles called black and white the actor's friend. If you mm-hmm. look at some of the greatest, not all of them by any means, not all of them, but if you're looking at Casablanca, if you're looking at Potemkin, if you're looking at The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, if you're looking at Citizen Kane, if you're looking at one of my all-time favorite movies, which none of you have ever seen because nobody's ever seen it, called The Organizer with Marcello Mastroianni, these are, these are all black and white movies. Mm. Um, the Innocence 
The minute has been meeting has been upgraded by the host, and now include. Oh, this is fascinating. Okay, I love. <laughs> anyway, it. Uh, I, 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 I hit the button that said I love it, and yeah. that's and then it went away. <laughs> anyway, um, you know that I think black and white, especially for, but not exclusively for you know some kind of fantasy and and stuff. Listen, there's no question that there are brilliant, brilliant. 10,000 great color movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was part of the uh, DGA, the Directors Guild Committee. There was a thing, I don't know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, where they started coloring black and white movies. I've seen that. And, and they didn't eat, and they tried to high tech it up. They, they said, we're not coloring, we're colorizing. And I said, that's bullshit. You're just, you know, paint by numbers. Um, and, this was somewhat cynically done on the notion that people wouldn't watch a black and white movie on Ted Turner's, you know, channel. And he owned all these black and white movies. So they tried this and it, it was a disaster from every standpoint. Um, it, it's what, what year was this? Oh, this is like 25 years. You'll look it up and you'll say movie colorizing and it, it looked like crap. And by the way, it's not like the ability to do this doesn't have its uses because it does. Have you guys seen a movie called They Shall Not Grow Old? No, but I, I love that title. Not. Okay, let me let me tell you about this. We're wandering a little bit afield, but maybe <laughs> not maybe not really. Uh Peter Jackson, we all know Peter Jackson. Yes. Yes. Okay. Was approached by the BBC and said we have all this footage. We're coming up to, I don't know, the hundredth anniversary. Of oh World yeah, the, the what? Yeah, yeah. And now I know what you're talking about. <laughs> we would like to do something with all this World War One footage to celebrate the hundredth anniversary of World War One, if if the war is worth celebrating. And uh, so he looked at all this footage. And, of course, it runs at old-time movie speed. And you know why that is, right? Because when they added sound, all the movies now running at 24 frames a second. But it was originally being shot at um, 12 frames a second or something like that. So it all gets speeded up. Right. But he recalibrated all of it. So, it, and, and, by the way, it was hand-cranked, so the speeds were varying. So the first thing he did was straighten it out so they all looked normal. And the next thing he did was to add color to it. And now it starts to look quite modern. And the next thing he did was to clean it up digitally so there's no scratches, no splotches. So it's starting to look like a perfectly modern movie. And then he did one more thing. He added voices. And he had lip readers who were experts at looking at what the people were saying and then in order to dub them correctly, he would look at the shoulder patches on their uniforms to see what their squads were. And it said mm. if, if they were from uh, uh, the northeast of England or something like that, he would get people with the northeast accents oh, wow. to, to dub. So they were all sounding like where they were from. Mm-hmm. And he stitched together this 
amazing movie called They Shall Not Grow Old. Now, there was a really creative use of coloring black and white footage, which was to try to make World War I not seem like some long-ago, old-timey thing, but in-your-face, contemporary, what it was like if you were there, if you were them. Right. And it's, it's a remarkable, you know, uh, the, the very fact that you can digitally clean up stuff uh, which I did. I'm one of the people, one of the two people who rescued the African Queen, which was unavailable oh. on DVD. It was unavailable. It was the only movie on the AFI 100 list that was not available on DVD. It took six years. Oh, my three, God. Three years to straighten out the legal mess and another three years to straighten out the, the actual film. Now, remember, it was Technicolor, and Technicolor is three pieces of film running through the camera, red, red blue, blue, yellow. Red, and yellow. Yeah. So digitally, you're now able to clean up every frame three times, what's sh- shrunk, what is faded, what is scratched. You can put it all back. And the other thing about Technicolor and those three pieces of film is that they could never get them to line up 100%. <laughs> So Technicolor always had a kind of agreeable, romantic fuzziness that mm-hmm. worked great for love stories and romantic comedies. I just watched Peeping Tom the other night, and that, that was Technicolor, and it, there's, it's a really cool effect. But, but, but it's, it, it's different. Let me just say that oh, now, yeah. now, because of digital technology... You can line up those three pieces of film 100%. And the result is that sometimes you see things you shouldn't. Hmm. When they like did what? the fifth, when they, when you did the 50th anniversary edition of The Wizard of Oz, when you watch Judy Garland singing over the rainbow, she has acne. Oh. <laughs> and it's not funny. You should, it shouldn't. It's a disservice. It's, it, you know, you're translating when you're when you're doing this, when you're saving, when you're reconstructing. You have to make some judgment calls. The first time they did Sunset Boulevard digitally, they filled in all the shadows in Norma Desmond's house. Mm. <laughs> they, oh, all the that's no Billy, All the things Billy Wilder tried to put in, they they didn't understand the intention of the original cinematographer. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I updated some of my Star Trek movies for digital, I kept saying, oh, wait, fellas, I'm seeing things we don't want to see. I don't want to see duct tape on my set. No, <laughs> gonna have, yeah, that's gonna a have bad to put in. You're going to have to put in diffusion. You're going to have to help. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to be careful with what digital technology can do. But it sure has its uses. The Godfather was the last movie shot in American movie shot in Technicolor and they sold all the Technicolor equipment to China oh really yeah that's funny I wonder if there's any um, Chinese movies that came out in Technicolor after that oh sure of course there were a million (laughs) a million and then the thing about the Technicolor dyes is that the Technicolor dyes are really stable they do not fade Whereas the, the, the dyes that came later, the single strip movies that we shoot, 
or shot when we were shooting on film um, were much more subtle, many more gradations of, of color, but they are not stable. And then you have some films that just start turning purple. Oh, yeah, um, vinegar syndrome. Yeah, vinegar syndrome. It's bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> and sad, sad. You know, you see some film that was really beautiful, like Land of the Pharaohs when it came out. One of my all-time guilty pleasure favorites. And, That's a guilty and, pleasure? And it, it's hard to justify Land of the Pharaohs, but I think it's really cool. Nick, it's almost <laughs> impossible to justify any of the movies we watch on this show. Oh, okay. Right. Well, I... No guilty pleasures here, just pleasures. Well, you're, you know, you, you, you've, you've got two really ace movies that you're talking about. You're talking about The Exorcist. You're talking about The Innocents. Those are, those are two first-class pieces of work. Yeah, they really with are. With entirely different premises. Mm-hmm. One is total ambiguity, and the other is total reality. Mm-hmm. But they still, uh, you know, this happens to us all the time. We try to pick two movies that have nothing to do with each other, and then we accidentally get movies that do thematically have some things in common. Uh, if not straight-up narrative devices. But both films deal with possession as a concept, and that's that was interesting. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, you're right. Deborah Carr actually said later that she really lamented that The Innocents did not get the attention that it deserved at the time because... Uh, not so much for herself, but for Jack Clayton and Freddie Francis. She thought that they should have received a lot more accolades than than they did, I guess, because there was a bit of a uh, uh, a standoffishness from the studio. Oh, listen, the the history of art is filled with posthumous success stories. Um, or even films that just weren't appreciated at the time they came out, or paintings that weren't appreciated, or pieces of music. Um, and it, artists are usually ahead of the curve, but it doesn't necessarily help them financially or the people who, who you know, made something that was so terrific. Um, it's cold comfort, except, except that you've had the last laugh because you got it made. Right and as and and people will come along and they'll rediscover it and you've never seen the innocence. People listening to this show are going to find that movie, and it'll scare their socks off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'll say, "My God, how come I didn't know about this?" So, Nick, what scared you about this movie? I remember you mentioned that it, it scared the crap out of you. Um, I because I didn't know what was real. Uh, it, it was the it, it was the the tension between what one part of my brain said, "Oh, this is what's happening," and the other part of my brain going, "Really, really, hmm. or is is it possible?" That's what enabled me to believe in something that I normally couldn't find myself believing in, um, mm. and also the fact that I'd been tricked because I went along with her. She took care of the King of Siam's kids. Okay, we're going to be fine. Um, And then at a certain point, and I don't remember at what point in the film it was, I also remember Miles kisses her goodnight. Right on the lips. And I thought, holy shit, you know, (laughs) what? Um, As if it it confirmed my bias after looking, watching her look him over with the eyes that she has 
and being like, oh, this is kind of creepy, this pedophile-y kind of thing. And then he just kisses her on the lips goodnight. <laughs> and then he makes all illusions uh, saying things like, you're my prisoner now. Oh, yeah. Creepy little. He's a prick. I think I'd like to point it out that he, he's a prick. Do you, does everybody agree? Or is he... and, and wasn't Flora played by Pamela Franklin? Yes. Isn't Pamela Franklin? And have you ever seen the prime of Miss Jean Brody? Never have I ever. Guys, guys. Um, <laughs> well, looking at Pamela Franklin as a babe in Whoa. the prime of Miss Jean Brody. Yeah. And watching where that goes, <laughs> she funny. was she was so brilliant. Mm-hmm. She she plays a character named Sandy, and and she's I don't want to spoil it, but she's she's really great. She has glasses on, and anyway, I recommend the movie. <laughs> <laughs> the one the one stipulation to watch that. I think you know Deborah Carr. I think is one of the most consistently underrated. You know, everybody always sort of saw her as such a glamour puss starting with From Here to Eternity when she's, you know, making love with Burt Lancaster on the beach. And right. and the the fact that she could really get down in in very daring ways. I think the only actress since then who does that kind of stuff is Nicole Kidman, who's really prepared to just say, go for it. Mm-hmm. Um there's there's a Nicole Kidman movie, very strange movie, where she has a love affair with a little boy. Why? And you, oh yeah, <laughs> that she thinks is the 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 ghost or something of her dead husband. Um, oh my god, that sounds I, wild. I, I, I could look it up and find what it is. I mean, nobody <laughs> saw it, of course. <laughs> um, but if you ever, you know, and if and. Try try looking at Deborah Carr in a movie called Separate Tables. Uh, also, come to think of it, with Burt Lancaster, although they don't have any scenes together in Separate Tables. Isn't that mm. funny? Because uh, they had done From Year to Eternity, and now they're in this movie where they're kind of like walking past each other. Mm. Um, but she plays this dowdy, stuttering frump. And trying to make Deborah Carr look like a dowdy, stuttering frump took some doing. Yeah. Well, Could we go all around the table right now and just and say our favorite favorite like stylistic flair or favorite scare or something? Well, I'll just start with Andrew. the 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 hallway scene with the black the lady in black dress when you first uh, when you first see her. Um, that was uh, I was already into the movie, but then that got me like, oh, this is like a really this is a scary movie. This is pretty cool, and so. I like there's a moment where she's looking out the window and there's somebody that the, and the other woman or she we see the other woman standing on the bridge and then there's yes. a teardrop isn't there a teardrop on a oh, letter on a on the desk yeah on the desk and I go uh-oh I think yeah. I have to go to the men's room now <laughs> <laughs> Joe what about you um I think yeah, like any any time where where we see uh, the um, the 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 uh, the supposed ghost question mark mm-hmm. of Miss Jessel anywhere that mm-hmm. just creeps me out. Yeah, that's one of the things. Actually, there's a similar effect on the the first 
Black Sabbath album cover, a woman standing in the distance with mm. dark clothes and dark hair, and it has the same unsettling effect because you can't really make out anything about her. Yeah. Oh, when she's like just in the reeds, and mm-hmm. it just very... It, it's interesting because the whole movie deals in ambiguity, and then just that shot is so eerie, and you can kind of understand the form. You can't totally understand what the image is, but you know that it's... I wasn't even sure it was a woman until they discuss it openly after the fact. Mm-hmm. Right. It's so effective. I was going to uh, say just the um, the the whole child kissing thing like brought me to <laughs> thinking about the end of the movie where um, Debricker kisses Miles back in a way. And I, I just didn't... Um, so we get two of those. Uh, but uh, <laughs> also... It, I just didn't really, I guess, I, I guess it just makes it more, uh, uh, ambiguous with, with the child, I guess, dying at the end. I don't know, uh, what you guys thought was about the ending of this movie. Well, I really like the demon character, uh, standing above on the ledge and then the cut back to it. And it's just a statue. Yeah. It's instead like, with mm. the hand grasp. It's like, oh yeah, <laughs> she might be crazy. And then, and then the child just dies. Like, Wait a what minute. did he die of? I, that's yeah. That's that's the question. I always assumed is he had like a heart attack or something. Yeah, maybe yeah. fright or something. But he was the one stressing everybody else out. Did she really stress him out to the point of a heart attack? Well, she was shaking him a lot, yeah. wasn't she? She's like, admit it, admit yeah. it. There's a ghost inside you. Well, you say that you shouldn't shake babies. I, I, I think that that kind of goes back to the whole thing about her wanting to get to the bottom of why he was expelled from school because it sounds like he was already kind of on the edge and that's why they kicked him out in the first place so he was already keyed up by then and then she drove him over the edge is what i took from it what's well, it's very funny. well what i like sorry i didn't mean to interrupt no by all means go for it what i like is art that asks you to use your imagination that art that asks questions rather than answering them Mm. once you understand how the magic trick works it ceases to be sort of it's always sort of anticlimactic when you say oh here's the reason for this Um, I know something about Arthur Conan Doyle and about Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle and Houdini were sort of friends. And then Houdini did a magic trick where he walked through a brick wall. And Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, who believed in spiritualism after 1916, he lost a lot of relatives in the war, um, was convinced that Houdini had spiritual powers that enabled him to walk through this brick wall. And Houdini said, no, it's a trick. And when you, and when he, when one learns how you, he did it, which I happen to know, mm-hmm. and if you invite me back on your show, we can get into this. Um, <laughs> and you go, this is so stupid. This is so ridiculous. <laughs> this is what fooled the creator of Sherlock Holmes. Right. This, 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 how he walks through a brick wall. So my point is that what I object to in a lot of movies that I see is they don't leave things to the imagination. Yes. The Exorcist 
which happens to be an extremely disturbing and frightening movie, but it isn't a movie that leaves a lot to the imagination. It spells it all out. You're going to see her head spin around. You're going to see things that you may stop and say, how did they do that? Mm -hmm. But surely that's not the point of the story. The Mm -hmm. story is, how does, is this really, you know, can, this is happening and this is, and what's going to happen to father so-and-so and, you know, look out for those stairs. Um, but <laughs> I think that we live, here's a confession. I mean, you're talking to the man who fell asleep in both versions of Blade Runner. Okay. <laughs> uh, oh, there are like five or six versions of yeah. that now. Well, I, I fell asleep because the movie didn't let me do anything. Mm-hmm. It just presented me with a succession of images, each one perfectly realized, amazingly realized, with no distinctions made between an important or an unimportant image, and nothing left for me to try to figure out. The horror movies that you and I are all celebrating always invoke your imagination. And the and and the basic way they do it is the camera's looking at me, I'm looking at something, and I go, Whoa, what is that coming at me? <laughs> and I scream and I disappear, and the audience goes, Wow, what did he see? What did he see? But you don't always have to cut to what they are seeing mm-hmm. in order to once right. you do that, the yeah. gas goes out of the balloon. The You've explained over. the magic yeah. trick. Mm-hmm. And that's why the innocence exert such a powerful hold at least on on me is because of all the things left out all the questions unanswered that's where the tension comes yeah that leaves it up to your imagination exactly it's good a movie can be there's such thing as a movie that is too obtuse i think sometimes david lynch can get a little bit in that ballpark but like you're saying i think that the perfect recipe is the movie that asks you questions you know It doesn't ask you too many, doesn't purposefully confuse the shit out of you. Movies can make you change your mind. There are movies that the first time you see them, or any kind of art, let's take The Rite of Spring, let's take Le Sacre de Printemps, what was that, 1913, and the the piece started a riot, and some woman jumped up and said, I've never been so insulted in my life. And there was a riot in the theater and Stravinsky and, and the conductor, Pierre Monteux, they had to escape on the train. They had to get out of town. And what is it? 35 years later, it's the soundtrack to Fantasia and nobody bats an eye. Mm-hmm. We just say, oh, this is like great music for dinosaurs fighting. We don't yeah. question it. <laughs> Reading a book on Peck and Peckinpah right now. And it opens with uh, the release of Wild Bunch in theaters and it's, reaction reactionary audience and and that's a funny movie that changed the the course of film history after the fact but everybody was so wildly upset and offended by it at first yeah this is the artists are you know lady chatterley's lover like that's a bad thing and banned in boston uh blah blah um movies that an art which is incomprehensible alien to what's gone before we don't know we can't, we don't understand. And then you look at it again, you know, and even certain works of art that you do understand change as you re-experience them. So like the first time 
you read War and Peace. You're 25 years old. Let's say that's when I guess I read it, 25. And then you read it at 45. It's a different book. Yeah. Because your life experience brings more to it now. Mm-hmm. And there were things that, oh, you didn't understand or you couldn't identify with. And now suddenly you do. You know, it, things are different when you've had children. You go, oh, yeah, I get that now. Or, mm. <laughs> yeah, Joe, you get you you understand the horrors of child death in movies now, right? Yep, I can understand <laughs> it now. <laughs> <laughs> so is this, is this one a thumbs up from everybody? Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's no question. Nick surprises Absolutely. us with a thumbs down. He's like, nah. no, 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 I didn't know. <laughs> Listen, this is one of my favorite movies. I... I love it. And when somebody says, what's your favorite horror movie? That's an easy one for me. You know, you have that in common with a few big creators is uh, Joe Dante, a person I'm a fan of, cites this as his favorite horror movie. Scorsese cites it as one of his favorites. Francois Truffaut cites it as one of his favorites. So, it's- Oh, this is really interesting because I'm working with Joe on something and, and I didn't know You're working this. with Joe Dante? Yeah. So what? That's cool. So... Um, <laughs> That's funny. I have to send him a shoot him an email or something. Yeah, now, funny. now you have to confirm that for us because I just read this online. So we need to make sure that this is real and we're not just oh, out anybody here who picks it. It can't be a rumor. Nobody, nobody. That doesn't just like drift into the ether. <laughs> uh, and Scorsese, um, whom I also know, but I've I've never actually discussed the innocence with him. But I, I it would be very easy to confirm that. And we'll be back after this word from our network. You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening. Okay, so, uh, Joe, tell us about The Exorcist. A regular girl in a regular home on a regular street is facing an unseen dark force that takes hold of her. When science cannot find the answer, her mother calls upon a Catholic priest for help. He and an older priest experienced an exorcism must then face the demon head-on in a battle for her life. As if, as if anyone needed to know the plot of the exorcism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is I, It's probably a spoiler alert. Is everybody thumbs up on this one before we even get to the end of it? Oh, yeah. Terrific movie. Yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, it's, we, we chose, normally, uh, we do kind of bigger movies like this as a singular episode, but we've decided that there was, there's just been so much said about The Exorcist. So we saved it for a mini one. Um, what's interesting to me again? about the, the Exorcist is that, it seems to me that the movie is built up by the accretion of realistic detail, 
which is not the case, for example, of the innocents. The, the lives of these people, where they live, who they are, what they do when confronted by all of this, as I recall, is very much something that you can step-by-step step kind of follow along what Ellen Burstyn is faced with and, and, and the different things she tried. And the movie becomes, stop me if I'm misremembering, increasingly surreal mm-hmm. and nightmare-like as the possession sort of takes over her, her daughter and the room goes cold and all these things happen. But you've gotten there by incremental realistic degrees on this on this journey into the possession mm-hmm. yeah yes, it, it's very it little steps you know little bit little bit little bit at a time and before you know it it just ramps up into you know a complete nightmare the opening of this movie i've always found kind of horrifying i believe that they shot it in iraq and it's an excavation and mm-hmm. You have one of many priests that has multiple duties. This one is archaeological priest. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and he uncovers, I guess, Pazuzu the demon, and he kind of knows it. But you're met with this sinister moment with a gargoyle and dogs fighting and a person watching and just strings pinching. And it just ramps up really quick to not particularly horrifying imagery but something that is just a really tense and upsetting moment and that's just how the movie tees off <laughs> i also think the use of the music isn't it penderecki yes is the, is the composer as i recall mm-hmm. and i thought i that's inspired billy friedkin is a very musical guy really and he he directs a lot of opera no um kidding. and he, no he's 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 really good. And I have seen, I'm a big opera fan, so I've seen a lot of the operas that he's directed. Um, and he is, he is musically incredibly sophisticated. And his choice of Penderecki is a really informed choice. Somebody who doesn't know music is not going to go there. Is not going to know to go there. Right. Um, and part of what lends that whole Iraq sequence, its potency, I, as I remember, was the music. Yeah. Oh, totally. So tension-driven. And you don't even know, as a viewer, I imagine the first time watching the movie, you probably have no idea what's coming or what's around the corner. But it's so tension-driven that it's just digging into your spine. It's digging into the back of your neck. Well, one of the things about music and film, I mean, there's a lot of things you can say about it. Silent movies were never really silent. They always had music. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sound always dominates picture. Always. You can shoot a girl romping through a field of marigolds, happy as can be. And if you play Chopin's funeral march underneath it, that girl is dying of an incurable disease. (laughs) There's no question about it. Um, and, And you cannot overstate the importance of music in film and particularly in horror movies, uh, whatever nameless feeling of right. dread mm-hmm. can be imparted in a scene. And music can do all kinds of things. You know, people can be talking to you and saying, I love you. And the music can be saying he's lying. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I don't know that, if, that's if a- it's 
true or, or not, just something that I read somewhere was that uh, uh, Layla Schifrin was originally supposed to do the music, and William Friedkin hated what he did so much that he threw the tapes into a dumpster. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Is he a volatile character? Or? Vol- yes. Well, he was. He's he's mellowed. He's he's mellowed. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I've, I've I, known him for quite a long time. He's mellowed. I know Please. that uh, Ellen Burstyn has some has some funny recollections of him in some of like the making of documentaries. Oh yeah. He was working with some actor, trying to get a reaction. He wasn't mm-hmm. getting it. And he said to the actor or the actress, I can't remember. Nowadays, he'd be out in his ass for this. <laughs> but he said, do you trust me? And, and the, the actor said yes. And he slugged him across the face and said, yeah. roll him. Yes, that was uh, actually Father Dyer, William O'Malley, who actually is a priest. He, yeah. that, that, that was who got the smack. Whoa. During the, the last rites scene when he's uh, over Damien's body. As after he threw himself out of the window, and you see his hand shaking as he's doing the sign of the cross and administering the last rites to him, he said that that's actually because William Friedkin had just slapped him <laughs> because he wasn't getting Wait. what he wanted out of him up until that point. Oh, the good old days. <laughs> you know, I had some extra time, and uh, I watched the movie, and then I watched it with Friedkin's commentary. And I actually never realized that during the last right scene that uh, it's implied that Father Karras is still alive and his hand oh, is just yeah. bloody and shaking. And he's it, it's intended for him to be living. I just thought that was death spasm or something. But it yeah. freaking sucks. Uh, let me interrupt. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. And then, unfortunately, I, I, I have to split. Okay. But no worries. What I would say is this. I'll leave you with this thought, and you can chew on it after I'm gone, if there's anything left to ch- worth chewing on. Mm-hmm. Artists are not the best judges of their own work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they, may th- they may have opinions, but an artist loses all proprietary authority over their creation when it's finished. Artists are people who put messages in bottles, and then when it's finished, you put a cork in the bottle, you throw the bottle out into the wide world, and you hope that somebody finds it. Somebody pops the cork, and somebody can decipher what you put inside. But you are not going to be standing over their shoulder when they're reading it going, no, that's not gum, that's gun, Hmm. uh, and telling them, in effect, what it means. There is no answer that on the part of the artist that is definitive. I hate the word definitive in any discussion of biography or art. If you ask three artists, if you ask Picasso and Rembrandt and Cezanne to paint an apple, you're not going to get a definitive apple. You're going to get three different versions of an apple. And the artist is not the best judge of, you know, I was at a, a discussion once with Billy Wilder when he was talking about his movies and somebody said to him is one, two, three a political film? And putting aside for a moment what the definition of a political film is which I don't know 
he's I can't remember his answer, but if if he had said yes, it is a political film, and you watched this whole movie and didn't have a quote political thought, whatever they are, uh, while you're watching it, that you were somehow wrong. And Billy Wilder was somehow right. Conversely, if he'd said, no, it's not a political film. It's just a comedy. It's nothing. And you had, quote, political thoughts while you were watching it, that you were somehow wrong again. The artist is not a book of answers to math equations at the back of the book where you flip and go, oh, he says Father Karras is alive. No, Father Karras is dead. No, it's none of his business. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. It, it's only your business, what you think. Hell yeah. I like that. That's mm-hmm. awesome. <laughs> That's um, great. You, you, it is in the eyes, the ears, and the, and the heart of the auditor, the reader, the viewer. All great works of art rely for their success on something that they leave out. Paintings don't move. Music has no intellectual content. It's just cat gut and tubing. And words are just code on a page. It isn't until you decode what the word is when you look at the painting that's when things begin to move when you when your eye meets the picture mm-hmm. beethoven becomes profound when it hits your ear but the rest of it is all up to you it's your imagination that fills in the spot that fills I- in that occupies the space shakespeare understood this he's in henry v the first thing he says in the opening of the play on your imaginary forces work Think when we speak of horses that you see them planting their proud hoofs in the receiving earth, for tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings, carry them here and there, jumping o'er times, turning the accomplishment of many years into an hourglass. Um, you're doing the heavy lifting, and art that does all the heavy lifting for you, in my case anyway, puts me to sleep, and what the artist has to say I mean, I've never listened to those commentaries. I, it's like watching paint dry. Yeah, I remember the day we filmed this scene. I, what a load of crap. Um, I don't want the artist giving me the answers. I hear uh, that. I'll supply the answer. Thank you very much. I got to right. go. Okay. Nick, that oh, was God. awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Also related to music in The Exorcist, uh, apparently Mike Oldfield did not really care for the use of tubular bells in the movie. Not that they used it, but where it is in the movie, he just was kind of like, why? Was tubular bells the main theme? It's what is thought of as the main theme, but he doesn't, like like, when he saw the movie, he would just kind of like... Why, like he didn't really get what the the big thing with it was. Tubular bells. I always thought that was a Christmas song. It's like jingle bells. Jingle bells. Yeah, like the '80s new wave version of jingle bells, mm. but <laughs> by an or- orchestra and a composer. You know, he played like every instrument on that, like save for like. One or two, basically. Who, Friedkin? Well, he's... No, uh, uh, Mike Oldfield, when he did oh. the Tubular Bells record, like it's like 99% him like on the whole record. Wow. 
two. Apparently, it nearly drove him insane. That would drive me insane. I don't know if I could ever do something. That, that's a lot of tracks. Yeah. <laughs> Exorcist. <laughs> Exorcist. You know, Nick was saying something about how uh, he appreciates a movie that leaves uh, questions open for interpretation by the audience and over a movie that holds your hand and is direct. Mm-hmm. And he implied that this this movie was the more direct of the two, which I, I agree it is. Mm-hmm. But s- something I appreciate about this movie is that it really... I don't know if it's so direct. It's it's also pretty... Uh, I'll use the word again, obtuse. For mm-hmm. instance, just the intro of the movie. You don't really know what's going on. It's right. all visual, but it's not spelled out for you in any way, shape, or form. It right, kind of you... St- I'm sorry, I, I was just going to interject. You, you just get the vague notion that there will be a showdown. Mm-hmm. Something bad is happening, and an old guy seems to know what's up, right? Mm-hmm. I guess so. Um, like, I still kind of don't get the connection of the beginning of The Exorcist to kind of like the rest of the movie, All the uh, other than, you know, we were introduced to Fa- Father Marin, and he just comes in, and it's like, oh, he discovered like this little hole with 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 pazuzu stuff in it like a little statue and then this girl's like possessed by pazuzu yeah they literally unearth pazuzu yeah yeah he takes it he sees it as 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 the sign Mm -hmm. that he's gonna have to do battle again and then the little medallion oh i guess yeah the little medallions like it's saint joseph or whatever whatever that little medallion represent it's it's like oh i forget what that is but that's what they end up with at the end of the movie right it was uh friend priest of father yeah. Carassus who dies it's like a catholic thing it's like a from the catholic church and that he even says like like why is this here or something like that or he says or like i don't know if that was just kind of like saying it's like good versus evil in the same hole that they unearthed or something I imagine it could be used as like a talisman to keep Pazuzu trapped. And yeah. They under, the, yeah. I think like a they're kid like, gets that, right? A kid yeah. finds the thing. Yeah. They're like, what the fuck is this? Just throw it. Yeah. Yeah. And they're just like, bah, Pazuzu, yeah. back and roll. Yeah. Rock and roll. Yeah, exactly. This Pazuzu. What a dumb name. Real. That's real. Real that demon. That is an actual name. Yes. Pazuzu. Really silly named demon. That's got to be the worst. Well, I guess, you know, thinking about it, all the demons have pretty stupid, funny names. Beezlebub. What the? That's. Zool. Zool. <laughs> Pazuzu. Zool is actually a general word, I think, in, um, I forget which, which lore it is. A general? But, yeah, like, I think, like, Zool is actually, like a word for demon in mm. in a particular um lore from that area that came up in the i I've, I've spent a lot of time this year reading about uh poltergeist demons ufos and shit and that came up in the colin wilson book poltergeist uh and also again in the occult hmm. uh i can't remember but i know ghostbusters attribute it attribute zool to sumerian or babylonian yes. one of the two Sumerian, so it, 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 it's actually in in the movie Sumerian, not Babylonian. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Harold Ramis has a reason, like, can explain why it's different. <laughs> yeah. Like they like to eat babies. The Sumerians yeah. did bloodletting instead. 
Ghostbusters. <laughs> we got to do that one sometime. Yeah. Yes. Let me guess. Gozer worshippers. <laughs> right. No studying. <laughs> Ghostbusters. Uh, you, you, you said old guy played by Max von Sydow. No, no. Who actually no. isn't that old. Yes, that's what I was getting at. <laughs> but Dick Smith guy. actually made him look very old, and I'm sure we've oh, talked yeah. about it a million times on the show, but it bears repeating how good the makeup job <laughs> is that not only is it just a good makeup job, but it is actually pretty much what Max von Sydow looked like <laughs> by the time he was old. <laughs> Like so very true. accurately. Yeah, I, I think that, it's. I was just gonna say the first time I found out that that wasn't an old guy, I was like, "Wait, that guy's like not a million years old." Holy shit! It's what happens when you walk into the special effects department and say, "Give me the Mitch McConnell." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just add some jowls, some wrinkles. Fucking hate that bag of shit. <laughs> and it, it and he does a great job selling it too. Like when he's walking around, like when we see him, um, when he's walking around in Iraq, and he's kind of like, you know, like he's getting around, but he looks like he's having a little bit of trouble getting around. And yeah, he's taking he's got heart like, medication. Yeah, he's got mm-hmm. like a slight tremor in his hand and whatnot. It's it's a brilliant piece of acting for something that doesn't last very long in the mm-hmm. movie. I like okay, how he was I, stylish about his pills. Like it wasn't just like a pill bottle. It was like this cool little silver, like fucking awesome thing, full of nitroglycerin. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I gotta say, I watched the commentary with um, Friedkin, as I mentioned before, and I'm glad Nick's not around for this, because it must be stated. It sounds like Donald Trump trying to read you a children's story. Yeah. <laughs> I, it is a man talking, he doesn't, except for the fact that they shot in Iraq, he doesn't really unpack anything, or not Iraq, Iran, or Iraq. Yeah. It's Iraq. One of them. I'll figure it out and cut it. Thank you, Joe. It's a cue. It's Iraq. Uh, yeah. The the he uh, with the exception of that, he doesn't really talk about the filming. He just explains what's happening on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> he uses words over and over again. There's a moment where he just continues to use the word idyllic. He's just uh, be, and then we go from we go from Iraq to and now we're we're in idyllic georgetown where yeah. it's it's very idyllic and you walk yeah. around and this is fall and it's idyllic fall that's the, that is the everybody's very word. idyllic it is but you don't use it five times six yeah. times seven times in a row yeah when i went to georgetown and when i first got there i was just like this place is idyllic and you see he takes the nitroglycerin because <laughs> in the if you have a heart problem you eat the nitroglycerin but he's also a man of faith a man of faith has to have the nitroglycerin <laughs> People's heart doing good, and it's idyllic. It's, it's idyllic. idyllic medication. It's like, what the fuck is this man rambling about? <laughs> he just the whole commentary just explains what the characters are thinking or feeling or what they should do, which kind of ties into what Nick was saying. It's like that's yeah, that really is bullshit. I prefer the Frank Hannon Potter way of being like, yeah, we 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 fucking we stole this car to make this movie, yes. and mm-hmm. it was all made out of paper towels and baby oil. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> 
that's like better. I want you do commentary. <laughs> yes, there are very few of them, but like ones that I if anybody's never listened to a commentary, and if you're curious to listen to one that's actually good, I can throw a couple at you. Mm-hmm. The commentary for the thing is very good with John Carpenter mm-hmm. and uh, Kurt Russell talking. The Evil Dead commentaries oh, yeah. are all good. And any of the Bava ones that Tim Lucas talks on mm-hmm. are very good. But the ones, like specifically the thing in the Evil Dead movies, they are so fun yeah. to listen to because not only do you get like the peek behind the curtain where, you know, Sam Raimi and John Carpenter are actually like explaining stuff, like like telling you like how stuff was done and whatnot, and like doing it in a way that's not dry and boring, but then you also have like hysterical anecdotes and stuff during it too Mm. so you actually get entertained by it as it's edutainment that's awesome that's the best i love to be edutained the first commentary uh track that i ever listened to was on cannibal the musical that's uh the (laughs) the south park guys and i I thought it was man I thought it was fantastic because uh, you could tell as they're going on that they're just drunk, like they're just getting hammered. And um, they even say they're like, we're going to drink while we're doing this. And then you could tell that they're getting drunk. And uh, they just uh, one of the guys is just basically uh, t- starts talking about a, a an ex-girlfriend and how like he na- he's like, I named this horse after her. And she ended up marrying some like manager of like uh, a grocery store and she dumped me for him and it's like whoops and like and then all of a sudden like the, the 15 minutes goes by and they haven't said a word and uh they, they just come back and they're like yeah we, we we're like drunk and we hit a button and we don't know how to fix it it's great it's a great commentary sounds like this show <laughs> could you imagine if warner brothers had had their way and marlon brando was cast as Father Marin, and Jack Nicholson was cast as Father Karras. Yeah, this movie would suck. You think? I agree, one hundred percent, that it would suck, or would at the very cool. least, it would not be as engaging. Mm. It it would be conflicting big dick energy, just battling that at like the whole time. Um. One interesting thing that I actually did not know until till today, which I don't know how this fact escaped me, but apparently Blatty had actually already hired Stacy Keach to play Father Karras. Wow. Oh, is that how Stacy Keach made it into the ninth configuration? He's in that. Probably, right? yeah. That, that which which makes sense. Um, I could I could see Stacy Keach playing the character, although I am glad that it is jason miller but apparently after that like not long after that william friedkin saw jason miller uh in his um oh shit what is the name of the play the play that jason miller wrote i believe and he like immediately was like i i gotta talk to this guy and and like specifically about catholicism because that had something to do with the play and then he was convinced that Jason Miller would be perfect as Father Karras. So he left him a copy of the book. And then he turned up later, I guess, to like return the book or give an answer. And he says, yeah, this guy is me. That's cool. That's a good way to get hired. Just and saying, then, I am your character. Yes, he, he, he's like, the, the, he said, this character, I am this character. 
And, I get the job. Right. And then um, I guess they had like a, some arm wrestling over it with Warner Brothers, and then eventually Friedkin got his way, and Warner Brothers just bought Stacy Keach out of his contract to, you know, make him Not happy. Not a bad way to make a yeah. buck. What yeah. did he do? He went on and did that. Was that same year? Did he do um, the boxing movie? The fuck's that called? Uh, Fat City. Yeah, with Susan Terrell. Was that the? Mm-hmm. S- no shit. Oh, that was the year right before. So that was seventy two, mm-hmm. and then Exorcist is seventy three, right? Yes. Okay, so maybe he didn't just go do Fat City. <laughs> he already did it. That movie rules. It does. It rules so much that I forgot its name because it just like <laughs> hit me in the face like a boxing glove. I've but never anyway. even heard of that movie. I want to watch it. It's good. Very. It's like low key, just like gritty American realism, but like pleasant. Just very pleasant and kind of mm. sad. Yeah, I watched it not like uh, probably like maybe like two weeks or something after you had posted about it. Oh, really? Yes, and I was very happy. Glad you enjoyed it. Susan Terrell's in it. She does a good job. Ryan. Yeah. What is your theory on why this movie works? I'm so happy you asked. I was hoping to discuss this with Nick, and he almost kind of pointed it out. Uh, I- I've always felt this way, but particularly after listening to the commentary, I feel strongly this way. And it wasn't something that was said in the commentary, but it, more, more or less the way with which Friedkin... Uh, are, yeah, approached the discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, this movie is a benchmark in like horror, and it happens at a time when there were many benchmarks in horror, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and shit, and America's changing. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's, this movie is full of such extreme imagery, like absolutely extreme imagery. Like she fucking... It violently assaults herself, like, (laughs) in her fucking child doing that to her fucking vagina. If I have a kid, I'm going to be like, stop violently assaulting yourself. I see. (laughs) (laughs) It's so upsetting. And and it's like, it's something that you'd expect to see in, in, in the normal trash we look at that is like the bargain bin trash. Right. really do think that this movie gets away with stuff like that and its relentlessness <clears throat> because of its sincere and honest and realistic approach to family units, family drama, and also, more importantly, Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And it's it's that because it treats it so seriously and does it you know it doesn't poo poo Catholicism, but it also doesn't really hold it on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. It just treats it with this really honest look that it allows the movie to get away with all of this heinously upsetting, permanently scarring imagery for the rest of it. Uh, and that's 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 my theory. It's 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 in its seriousness with which it, it both approaches family and Catholicism that it lets it get away with absolutely exploitation filmmaking imagery. Not to that mention, is a good point. Not to mention big money behind it, mm-hmm. wide audience. That kind of power, that kind of like volatility just changes the landscape forever. Oh yeah. I know yeah, this uh 
I wish I could have seen this movie, been alive to see this movie in theaters, just because it sounded it sounded like it was an event, like it was like a like a cultural event to go see this movie. Right? Oh, it's got to be. Yeah. People lining up. I, I know they're like I've read somewhere that uh, towns that ban the movie from playing in their local theater, uh, mm. they would bus people into other towns that were allowing it, and people huh. would like. Just, yeah, get bust in like because they like they want to watch this movie and they can't in their town. Someone made a quick profit on that one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Hey, well, Lyle and I, we get the regular bus company. The, well, we ain't got no work. They won't let the kids ride on the bus with us anymore. We <laughs> yeah. to... so I heard the X. Um, I thought it was funny. I think did I don't know if Nick brought this up or or someone did, but. Just how different, uh, how almost polar opposite this movie was to The Innocents, where The Innocents kind of like, you're kind of on board with the fact that there's ghosts from the very beginning, and you're just like, you know, I guess if you might, some people might be guessing, but it's, it's, I feel like the, the fact that maybe it's all in her head starts to come later like you're just like oh is she crazy where this one starts off with is it's kind of like convinces you needs like the the priest father ferris needs convincing uh that reagan is possessed with an actual demon where and it was just like it's just like blatantly there hello (laughs) and (laughs) and i like that he like even in the face of what would seem to be overwhelming evidence he still tries to maintain a careful level of skepticism because he doesn't want to just jump to conclusions yeah he's like this shit can't be real there has to be an explanation but he's already been haunted by dreams nightmares his Mm -hmm. mom is is dying in a hospital for challenge people why Uh, you do this to me demi oh my god he's He's so tragic. I yeah. uh, th- that 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 woman. But by, by the way, when when he's uh, brings up, I guess the, the I forget what the exact dialogue is, but he brings up like the subject of like moving her from where she is, and 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 she's like, "No, this is my house, and I'm not going no place." That was my great grandmother. Yeah, <laughs> oh, my wow. great grandmother lived in this house by herself. And the whole neighborhood around her, you know, went in a, a not so great direction. And people would occasionally try to get her to consider the idea of leaving. And she absolutely, like, refused to leave. She was like, I'm not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. More power to her. The the actress that plays the mom, you, you aware of what happened to her? She died. <laughs> she dies in the movie and then died in post production. <laughs> and so did Jack McGowan. 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 Oh, it's me, Jack McGowan. Uh, he plays the director that. Uh, oh yeah, that Brooke falls Phoenix. down the stairs. Who keeps on calling the butler a Nazi? <laughs> that, that thing is so good. I'm Swiss. <laughs> that, the, He's like, sure, you never went bowling with Goebbels either. <laughs> Speaking of name calling, it's really good that when uh, Reagan comes down the stairs to the party 
and pisses herself that yeah. she first tells an astronaut that he's going to die in space. Yeah. The fact that they're just hanging out with an astronaut who's just like, I'm an astronaut. I go to space every now and then. It's really cool. You wouldn't believe what it's like in space. And then she's just like, you're going to die in space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But was that the guy who ends up getting thrown through the window? No, the direct. Uh, no, not that guy. Okay. Right? I don't think so. Yeah. No. The, no, it's the the uh, it's the main priest that gets thrown through the window. No, 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 uh, no. The first guy to get thrown through the window. The director is who get gets thrown th- through the window. Is he? Be- oh, okay. Be- because there's the whole discussion where um uh hold on. <laughs> Blacking on the name. Sharon goes to get medication from from the pharmacy and 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 uh and chris comes home and she's like what the hell's going on and and she says she left burke oh right with with reagan and then they and then chris is looking at her like yeah like great job like good you know like you know because he's a drunk and whatnot Mm. and then it turns out that uh he got thrown through window yeah and his neck was broken or whatever turn completely yeah. around yeah revisited gag in this movie <laughs> have you ever been to the you... exorcist steps anyone i have not i have not i, I saw cool. i always you've been yeah i had to go there for work or to dc for work and i was like I'm yeah going they sent to you Georgetown. to the steps yeah i'm just like <laughs> reporting for duty uh here at the andrew we need you to go to clean these steps <laughs> as a matter of initiation you have to throw yourself down these steps yeah apparently the stunt guy who who did that did it twice uh-huh. <laughs> that's a, like a long flight of steps it is <laughs> And there was no like I I think they only padded the edges of the stairs. Ugh. Oh, stunt that's, guys. D- yeah, you know that's a day in the life of a stunt person. Mm-hmm. And Jason Miller asked him like how the hell he can do that, and the stunt guy told him that he he used um uh like Zen meditation. Like he goes he would go into a Zen <laughs> state beforehand. And then just do it. He's like, it's complete numb resistance. I don't feel anything. Wow. Oh my god, you just fell down 14 dozen steps. How did you do that? <laughs> uh, you know, bro, I just meditated a little yeah. bit before. Yeah, I thought Ain't about no it. Thing. Yeah. I was being here now. No, <laughs> uh... Marshall. Executive producer of this movie. Mm-hmm. Struck gold with this movie. Domestic release. You know, box office weekend almost makes its whole uh, budget after a domestic release of the movie. Mm-hmm. Fucking creams it. Guy makes all the money in the world. What does he do? He Dice. goes and builds a lion palace in Africa. Oh. And he marries, he marries a hot actress wife, and then then he makes his next movie. Roar! Yeah, I, I was just about to say, oh, is this roar? Like, 
the executive producer of Exorcist wrote, directed, and starred in Roar, and that movie ruined his career and his family. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. he didn't do anything after that except for like weird credits that are non-credits. That's so wild. So wait, yeah. that was his house. That was like his that was house. his house. That was him. Him were his cats. That was his family. <laughs> That stars in the movie that were all the cats that live in that thing. Yeah. And he made that movie as a passion project based on all of the wealth he accumulated from The Exorcist. And then it just killed his career. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> all the more reason yeah. Roar is awesome. I appreciate that man's <laughs> swan dive. I like it. I like that the whole, the whole part of Roar is that he just wants to prove to people that cats are just like you know like lions and tigers are just like big cats and that they're nice and that's like his whole that's just the whole theme of the movie it's like yeah. we gotta save the cats they're nice they can live with us and they're just like yeah. <laughs> just like <laughs> wrecking his family and he's like no no it's okay it's okay his head's like split open yeah, yeah. it's like no it's alright yeah he's like a giant like gash on his arm like it's okay just Amazing. a scratch yeah I love that that's what The Exorcist made. Because <laughs> The Exorcist, we got that. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty wild. It's <laughs> so bizarre. <laughs> that's one of those things where like, it's so bizarre that you don't even question it because there's no way that that could possibly be made up. Like, No one could make that up. <laughs> yeah, I mean... If if Roar wasn't so graciously rescued by the Alamo Draft House, then like this story would sound like it was a made up story, <laughs> but it's real. <laughs> Melanie Griffith is just—I wonder what we should get her on the show talk about her traumatic experiences on the set of Roar. Yes, I'm sure you'll bump into her eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't. I'm, I like them. Everyone wanted to cash in on this movie because of how big of a hit it was like it has to be one of the most sex su- successful horror movies right like there what else can compare i i as, that's a good question and as a result we ended up with things like the omen yeah and amityville and the sentinel, the sentinel. Yeah, big big studio movies that wanted mm-hmm. to put a lot of money into making like classy highbrow <laughs> horror, which really I don't think had ever. Ha- I don't think classy horror had really happened too much. Although right. The Innocence is a good example. That is funny though that that it not only sp- that The Exorcist spawned classy horror like uh, or other movies to come out that were like considered classy horror, but it also spawned just like just horrible, just just movies that exist to cash in on the, the, beyond, the door. beyond the door and like there has to be other ones abby exorcism. yeah abby mm-hmm. what's exorcism that's a paul nashi oh really yeah oh we got sexorcism out there yeah. <laughs> that too so yeah sexorcismo just like both yeah. ends of the spectrum this uh this movie influenced <laughs> yeah like a, a reverse candle wick it's so good. I feel like The Omen The Omen is not as good a movie as The Exorcist for sure. But mm-hmm. I think that The Omen actually came respectably close to kind of walking that same tightrope balance of why you feel the movie works. I think that The Omen kind of 
kind of did it in its in its own way, even if the material just wasn't itself as as good as The Exorcist. Yeah, it's got those vibes. I mean, the character you did. It's serious. Like that, it doesn't really feel like the characters are laughable. Like everybody's right. very honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the horror is—it's not ex- as extreme as The Exorcist, but you know there are moments like the suicide thing. That thing has haunted me forever. Mm-hmm. That moment still makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> it's another black dress lady, right? Yeah. Yes, I believe she is wearing black. It's all for you, Damien. Speaking of black dress ladies, you know what I never noticed was, uh, jumping back to the last movie, is the score got aped for... The Ring. It was The Ring? Yes. They just aped the score for like 25 seconds and just slipped it in there. Wow. While watching the videotape. So it's like in the videotape section of the horror. I'll have to go back and check that out. That's funny. I actually haven't watched The Ring in a while. Me neither. I want to do that whole uh, Japanese version of the series. I've only ever seen the one. The Ringu? Yeah. Ringu. Ringu. One um, of our names had goo at the end. Like It was <laughs> Raigu and Joe Goo. And Goo. <laughs> Head Goo. <laughs> uh, I wanted to f- ask about... I-, I feel like I've seen The Exorcist many times, but I don't really know what version I've seen. Like I didn't know... If you guys you will know, insight. trust me, they are very different. Okay, from like the theatrical, and I know there was like the the version you've never seen before that yeah. came out years ago. That's the director's cut. That that I think that's the only version I've ever seen. It came okay. out when I was a kid. Oh, I I actually hate that version of it. Mm. I much but prefer the walk. theatrical version. Well, I think I do watch the theatrical like more more than. I, yeah, I just don't. I, I don't even recall the other versions. I know the version I watched most recently. Uh, it was on TV, and um, it was just interesting. Like that, they just cut out a lot of the profanity. Like they just com- like completely edited it out. Where I thought that would that's great because I, I recently watched a movie where it was like Casino, and they it was one <laughs> of those TV movies where they just like add in like a a less profane word you know what i'm talking about like yeah um it's like oh, yeah instead of penis it's yeah you, you mother with... trucker and stuff like yeah. that you know yeah. and uh there's just like the scene with joe pesci where he just has like this string of like profanity and they like replace every single word with like a ridiculous <laughs> word and it was like hilarious to watch you but, know yeah. some people were having fun making that happen yeah, yeah, like, they just they had a ball with it. <laughs> Let's take it all the way. Yeah, <laughs> you game, I'm game, I'm game. Are you game? Yeah, I'm game. Mm. And then there's the- a. Oh, I was just gonna say, like, is is there a version of The Exorcist where they CGI the puke? Did that change at some point? No. Man. I swear to God, I saw a version where, like, when she initially projectile vomits, it like they altered it. I wow. haven't seen that. Never seen that. Hmm. Okay. Also, what what's the difference that ten minutes in a in a missing crab walk scene would would do for you, Joe? <laughs> it does nothing. It, it it's not necessary. Like like that. That's my problem with it is that the theatrical cut is this perfect thing that didn't need anything added onto it, and what is added on is just unnecessary, and it mm. just bogs it down unnecessarily. But it, but it's the crab walk scene, it's the scene of the uh, 
the, the psychological evaluation. Yeah, hospital stuff. People. Mm-hmm. But it's like one big scene that's kind of lengthy, and then it's the opening of the movie has two shots that weren't there, which is the house, which I think is a bit stupid, and then the uh, ver- the statue of the Virgin Mary that then gets desecrated later. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. I, yeah, I gotta put, ask. Like, cone tits on the Virgin Mary or something. Are those cone tits, for as many times as I've seen this movie, I've never been able to understand what that <laughs> yes. is. It looks like they reformed the concrete of the uh, statue or like yeah. the marble of the statue and it looks like the statue itself just grew weird long boobs and also a penis in a weird way that just like doesn't make any sense like i i don't know if any human could have desecrated it that way yes the ambiguity of what happened there is actually what i think works about it because it's so weird and repugnant almost mm-hmm. in a childlike way yeah and it like you don't really know like what it is like what it like like what is it even made of is like exactly it, like that's what makes it so like ew, like when you look at it because it it kind of escapes explanation it makes and then no they sense. do nothing to explain it which you know good Captain Howdy makes more sense than that yes Captain Howdy who. Uh, makes what are referred to as subliminal images like he pops up occasionally in the movie. I think it's what like two or three times mm-hmm. about that. And and uh, there's been like talk about about that and its effect on on people. And William Peter Blatty <laughs> said straight up, he's like, there are no subliminal images. If you can see it, it's not subliminal, right? Which is, is funny about that, that just like that still of, of Captain Howdy or that little quick thing um, is that this movie has so many scary parts and, and and things that would keep you up at night. But for whatever reason, that image is what what haunts my dreams still, like just Captain Howdy. That, that might was be. The, that was the last thing that ever scared me watching a movie. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I was t- maybe 10 when the, the re-release, the director's cut came out. My family rented it. We watched it. That was the single scariest thing. Yeah. Like, what and the fuck I've is never that? been scared at a movie since. And yeah. the rest of my life has just been chasing the fuck. That was ghosts. the scariest thing you've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. That, <laughs> that like before it, lots of other scary things. Return of the Living Dead scared the shit out of me because mm-hmm. I saw it so young. But Captain Howdy, man, that was the last time I ever felt fear from an image on a screen. Yeah, and and they tried to use it again in um, Exorcist, the beginning. Hmm. <laughs> they tried to slip it in there. I know at least once, may, maybe twice, and it's so dumb and ham-handed. Like hmm. even though they do it the same way. But they do it like in a smaller space on on the screen, so it's like in a spot rather than just a face like taking up your screen that just flashes in there. Yeah. And it yeah. doesn't work. It's dumb like the rest of the movie. Uh speaking of sequels and and stuff. I really haven't seen too many of the Exorcist sequels. I've I've seen the the second one which I don't remember much of and then the third one which I like and then not much else. I don't know if there was anything out there worth checking out. Nope. Okay. <laughs> I saw Exorcist the Beginning in theaters with my mother, and I 
seen three many times, never seen number two, and I've never seen the weird... Uh, what auteur made an Exorcist movie? Paul Schrader. Yeah, what the... F- why did he make an Exorcist movie? I don't know. It's called Dominion. S- no good? Nope. <laughs> it, <laughs> okay. It, it, it's like... Okay, so if you take elements of Rennie Harlan's Exorcist, the beginning, and elements of Paul Schrader's Dominion, and you rewrote them together and like kind of smoothed it out, you could have probably come up with a decent movie. But they both go too far in opposite directions. And neither one works. Well, the one's a little too PG-13 feeling, I think, right? The Exorcist, the beginning. Yeah, it's, you know, Rennie Harlan doing, you know, his, you know, what Rennie Harlan does. Like, Who is know, Rennie Harlan? Uh, Nightmare uh, Part 4. Mm. Um, trying to think what else. He, I, I Doing what he does, making schlocky sequels. Yeah, he worked for MTV, I think, at one point. Um, yeah, you know, he's got a certain, you know, kind of style and, you know, it's not necessarily all bad, but it's not like, I don't know why he was directing an exorcist prequel. And then Paul Schrader's is too, um, it doesn't give you enough of what you would want from an exorcist. Uh, prequel and actually William Peter Blatty said that the reason why he felt that Paul Schrader's version was so like whatever was because Paul Schrader's not Catholic and I can actually understand what he means by that like there that like that Catholic like doom that hangs over people who are raised Catholic and are, you know, lapsed Catholics and et cetera. Like if you're under the Catholic umbrella, there's this weird like doom and guilt you live with. That is totally absent. Like they're like that, that, that lingering sort of peripheral doom and gloom darkness that hangs over that version of Christianity just doesn't. Yeah. Schrader's got his, uh, Protestant, doom and gloom instead as seen in the movie first reformed but but the the thing like the the what's one of the weird points and one of the things that doesn't work i feel because it almost seems like it was done just to do it is in dominion the affected child instead of um decaying before your eyes and, you know, becoming a wretched thing as a result of the possession, he becomes, like, a super being. Oh, no, and, don't do that. Yeah, and it, it takes just, all the it, fun out. Yeah, it doesn't work. It, it's very, it's dumb. Schrader, come on, he knows better than that. I bet the, the first Reformed is a better Exorcist movie than that one. It probably is, and... I. <laughs> I, I, I was just going to say before we stop talking about Exorcist sequels, uh, Exorcist 2 
it is a terrible movie, but it is a very enjoyable terrible movie. <laughs> okay. I gotta peep it. Yeah, Make it's it not on. without things about it that that are interesting and good, but it's just it's clearly a bad movie. But it's so like excessive and over the top that it that you you will enjoy it if you watch it. All right. I was possessed. Well, that's okay. He's gone now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was musing last night. It's like, what do the long term effects of this traumatic experience look like? I imagine they look much different than any movie has ever explored. Usually in the movies they've explored, the person is rehabilitated from their trauma or they haven't quite rehabilitated from their trauma and they're a little skittish and they're like, you know, it's the sequel and it's like the new bunch of characters have to go reach out to the old one to get some insight. Really, I feel like something like this, an experience like this, could just make a serial killer, maybe? Maybe it's like a slashy, hacky... Mm. You know, like Andrew, if you were a possessed 13-year-old who mashed up their genitals with the crucifix, had a horrible time, (laughs) real bad time, it wasn't good for anybody, priests were there, like, ah, yeah. then you're not possessed anymore, but you remember all that, Yeah. and now your idea of what reality is has Mm. been completely shattered. There's no, you can't rely on anything. Mm Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that make a more broken character than yeah. these movies ever Yeah, explore? kill people. Yeah, kill people. <laughs> That's <what happened>. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, you know, inevitable next step. Yeah. <laughs> That's Either that or you just end up like Annalise McKell and you just end up dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, those are probably the only two options when it comes down to possession like that. <laughs> Though, um, you know, there were some spooky, spooky things that happened around the set of this movie, right? Oh, really? Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. There are some spoops. <laughs> we talked about the one where the two actors died. Mm-hmm. There was a fire that no one could find a cause of. Oh, yeah, it destroyed the whole set but Reagan's room. Because it was cold, right? <laughs> <laughs> because it was refrigerated. <laughs> uh, I always thought like it would be funny if that you know that clock on the wall that stops when uh, Father Marin is, is in is like I always kind of like wish that that was um, that was like not supposed to happen. That that'd be awesome if that was a tidbit. But you wish. Oh oh. For a second, I thought it meant you wished the clock didn't stop. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's a weird agenda for a movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, babe, like me. It's like, oh, yeah, this fucking cursed movie. Happy accident. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, Ellen Burstyn got her, her back hurt pretty mm. badly doing, um, getting pulled like she was in a harness. Uh, it, Th- this was for, for for the effect for when Reagan smacks her in the face when she stands up and backhands <laughs> her mother and her mom flies across the room, you know, to you know give you the the impression of like how like forceful the demon is. The full effect. And, yeah, and she was she was in a harness with I guess like filament or whatever, 
attached to uh hole like it went through holes in the wall and there was just a couple of big strong guys holding it and on cue they were supposed to just fucking yank her mm. like full force and they did it a couple of times which i can't even imagine having to do that more than twice mm-hmm. and Apparently, Ellen Burstyn said to William Freakin, like, you, because he kept shooting it, and she's like, you have to tell them to chill out. They are, it, like, it's, it, they're doing it way too hard. And then she even said, I think, in one of the making of, she said, like, she, like, she felt behind them, like, like, like behind her, like, like, like a look was exchanged mm-hmm. between Freakin and the guys where he was just like, yeah, he's like, Don't. do it harder. Yeah, like basically, like <laughs> it's funny that that one gets listed as supernatural because it doesn't seem supernatural at all. It just seems like pure fucking negligence. And yes, just, like bad <laughs> per work policy. I guess. Then, then the, there was. I'm sorry. On on a related note, there was the if if anybody's never heard this before, it was the uh, him shooting a gun off behind Jason Miller. Wow. Yes. How did I didn't hear that. No wonder Chick J- made the face he made. Yes. And then Jason Miller got very upset. And I think, like, I, I think he might have actually punched him. <laughs> and yeah, I, a, again, him, hi, hi, him, him re- recalling it, he's, he's like, you know, like explaining, like, look, like, I'm an actor, you know, like, I can emote. I don't need artificial stimuli to act. But I guess whatever scene it was they were doing, William Friedkin was just like, I'm not getting what I need. He just saw some Herzog movie with Klaus Kinski <laughs> and just like heard that, yeah, when the Herzog put a stick of dynamite up Klaus Kinski's buttocks, <laughs> lit it off, and he's like, I could do that too. Or, yeah, no, I could do that. It's me. I sound like Trump. It's me. Uh, Jason Miller had the other actually eerie experience right joe a priest accosted him on the street randomly during the production when i don't think he maybe he was just dressed like a priest they they leave these details out of these these like urban legends mm. but he was walking down the street uh priest saw him and gave him a i believe a rosary or something along those lines and said reveal the devil for the trickster that he is he will seek retribution against you or he will even try to stop what you are trying to do to unmask him and then I guess the priest ran away and then (laughs) 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 the it yeah I don't that's it's a random thing to have happened I've actually never heard that one before (laughs) <laughs> I yeah it's again with this folklore you don't really know where the lines between truth and reality are uh, it was screened in Rome between two churches and yes. a cross was struck by lightning yes and then it fell down which is kind of like the omen yeah it's very much the omen the omen took, took a page out of the exorcist production <laughs> for its narrative <laughs> it's like we could do that that's good. We'll have a kill a guy. I mean, again, this is one of those movies that there's so many things that have been said about it that we can't really cover too much new ground. Is there anything else we need to say? Hmm. 
Um, the only other thing that I would like to say, not that it needs to be said, but it's just that how creepy Mercedes McCambridge's voice is. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And that is who? She is the demon voice. Wasn't there like ah. some controversy with uh, uh, Linda Blair getting nominated and something about the voice? Oh, really? Well, she, uh, Mercedes McCambridge was actually not credited originally, and oh, then wow. the the uh, the unions had to get involved in that. Mm. Um, which I don't know why they didn't do it, but. I mean, I guess maybe just to keep it like a mystery, but I mean, you know, I would think you'd want your credit if you if you had a very important part in something, even if you're not seen. Right. Uh, but that was uh, William Freakin was trying to figure out what to do for the demon voice. And his initial idea was he was just going to like electronically like distort it and pitch shift it. But then he thought that that wasn't like that would be too like, you know, it was too much. He wanted something more subtle. And uh, what was another? He had another idea that he was going to try to do and and he decided against or 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 they actually tried it and he thought it worked OK, but it, it he wasn't happy with it. But um then he eventually settled on the idea of trying to find a voice that was sort of like androgynous and he thought of Mercedes McCambridge from uh, she was like a famous uh, theater actress and he knew that she had a voice like that just an androgynous voice mm-hmm. like a, a, a voice that he, he that he said like had like like it was like a bass like feminine voice but that had certain like kind of almost male qualities to it where if she kind of altered how she spoke like you really couldn't quite tell if the voice was male or female yeah mm. yeah she has like a raspy kind of like deep voice apparently she chain smoked a bunch yeah for like, that well yeah that'll do it for the team yeah because that the voice is uh, Which is a shame because she was like real down to do it, so she like went through like a bunch of stuff like to make make her voice like real like raspy and whatnot, yeah. like just to add to it, and then she wasn't credited. Yeah, that's bullshit. <laughs> I'd get that's bought so out smart. for a credit. Yeah, take the money and run. Mm-hmm. Um, so thumbs up or down? <laughs> yeah, we already like- did that. Yeah, in the beginning, but yeah, this is like this is one of my favorite horror movies. Oh uh, yeah, to hands down, one of the best horror movies ever made. Mm-hmm. No I'm afraid that I might be at. I mean, th- thumbs up, of course. It's one of the greatest things ever. I'm afraid, like personally, that I'm at the point where I may be like, I may never need to watch it again. Yeah, it's just because you've seen it that many times. Give it yeah. five years. I hope. Mm-hmm. I'm still hoping for Halloween too. I've I've put Halloween on the shelf for a while, and I still feel no need to go back to it. Those that, that's fair. Those of all the movies that can go on the shelf that you don't need to revisit, Halloween and The Exorcist are certainly prime candidates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Andrew, 
Contact yeah. details. You can contact us at late night psychorama at gmail.com. Uh, we do answer emails. Um, so if you want to want to establish a little private dialogue with us, um, mm-hmm. we will answer emails. Um, also, uh, you can follow us on the uh, the old gram. Uh, we're there. We're we're on Facebook too, and yeah, late night psychorama, like one word for both. Night yeah, spelt N I T E N I T E, and we do have a very active Discord uh, channel, which I guess Ryan will talk about. Uh, and that that's also a way to reach us. Yeah, Discord's fun. We have the late night psychorama Discord right now, accessible if you are a Patreon subscriber or in. Uh, the all we need is sleaze movie channel um but yeah uh our patreon is there we really appreciate it we really like any likes and reviews they help so much and we love it's validating to know people are listening to this and we're not just speaking into the abyss and we love you all for taking your time and giving it to us thank you yes thank you thank you (laughs) so yeah um happy we, halloween right this is we're close to that yeah this is our halloween episode happy halloween motherfuckers all right good night good night bye, bye.